Blog Talk Radio. principality there is no created thing in the world like knowing the Lord Jesus Christ hallelujah No one like Hallelujah 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 Let's go to the word of the Lord I'm going to be opening tonight in Mark Chapter 16, the very last chapter of the Gospel of Mark So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and find that, Mark 16. Um, Please, and I need to to ask you tonight, fight the urge to read ahead and behind me. We're going to be reading a lot of scripture tonight. So for the sake of time and keeping your focus, stay with me. We're going to read in Mark 16 just verses 15 and 16. There the word of the Lord says, and he, that's Jesus, and he said unto them, his disciples, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but He that believeth not shall be damned. Go and preach the gospel. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who disbelieves shall be damned. The Great Commission. I want to talk to you tonight on the topic of baptism. I want to talk about the necessity and relevance thereof. I want to speak about the purpose and power thereof. And so if you wanted to give my message a title, you could simply just call it 
baptism. If you want to extend it, the necessity and relevance of baptism or the purpose and power of baptism. Take your pick. But we're going to get into this because this is a critical issue for the church. And last week, baptism came up in what I was preaching, but was not a centerpiece. So for those of you who are regularly with us and you know that I've been doing a series on the parables, we're suspending that for this week. We may come back to it. Tonight is going to be more of a teaching than a preaching. But I want to focus tonight on this essential practice, this ordinance that we have in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk about baptism. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you yourself said that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You also said, Lord God, that when the helper comes, when the paraclete, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will bring to remembrance and clarify everything that you have taught. You promised, Lord God, that he would be a help to us and a guide to us and a strength and an advantage to us. So we come tonight seeking that strength and seeking that help and seeking that advantage. And I pray, Lord God, that everyone, everyone, everyone hearing this word, whether they're hearing it live or hearing it in the archives, whether they're listening online, whether they're driving in their car, Lord God, that every human person who hears this would hear truth. Hide me, O Lord, behind your cross. Veil me, Lord, not with a veil that veils your glory, but, Lord, a veil that hides my incompetence, my weakness, my limitations, my humanity. For men and women did not gather tonight to hear from a man. They don't want to hear men's opinions. They don't want to hear a man's philosophy. They don't want to hear men's theories. They want to know, does God, do you, Lord, have anything to say to them? And so I humbly ask that you would speak through me. Use my tongue as the pen of a ready writer that writes upon the hearts and minds of the hearers. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing by the word of God. And because you have called us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, let your word renew us tonight. Let your word refresh us tonight. Let your word transform us tonight, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen and amen. So as I said, brothers and sisters, we're going to be focusing on the topic of baptism. And I don't really have a three-point sermon. Like I said, there's so much to cover. But I want to focus my teaching. I want to focus my message tonight. Around three questions. Number one, what is 
baptism. Number two, critically important question. And it came up last night, I mean, it came up last week after something I said about baptism. The question being, does baptism save you? And then third and finally, do you need to be baptized? Now, I know for some, they think those two questions are interchangeable, but you're going to see they're not. What is baptism? Does baptism save you? Must you be baptized? Let's jump right into this. And if you love God's word tonight, you're going to love tonight's message because we've got to cover a lot of word. So let's get right to it. Um, on the question of what is baptism, and please, we're framing everything around that verse in Mark. We will be going back to Mark. But for right now, if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, quickly open to Romans chapter 6. Those of you who are new to Scripture and you're in Mark 16, you're going to go to the right. After Mark, you'll meet Luke, John, the book of Acts, and then Romans. If you get to First or Second Corinthians, you've gone too far, turn back a little. But hedged in between the books of Acts and of 1 Corinthians, you will find Paul's letter to the Romans. There you're going to go to chapter 6, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Then we're going to go a little bit further ahead of that to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 8 till verse 15. Then we're going to go to Galatians. And we're going to read chapter in chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. Then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and read verses 12 and 13. If you didn't get all of that, don't worry. If you're in Romans, I'll repeat it. Let's go. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is free from sin. Succinctly, dead men don't sin. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Again, you're going to go a little bit forward from where you are in Romans. You're going to go to the right. You're going to hit several books, First and Second Corinthians, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And there in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, let's read. 
and then I'll come back and break all this down. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sin, I'm sorry, of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh flesh hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. Jesus triumphed in his death. We enter into his death through baptism. A few more verses. We're going now to Galatians. So if you were in Colossians, you have a physical Bible. You're going to go back two books. You're going to go Ephesians. Then you're going to hit Galatians. If you end up in 2 Corinthians, you went too far. Go to chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Finally, go a little further left. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read verses 12 and 13. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Hmm. That, that's a great sermon all in itself, but I want to read the next verse. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. I want to take a moment now then and break down what these verses are saying. Let's talk about this a little. Number one, what is baptism then? Baptism, you see in these verses, is the outward expression of an inward faith. You see, according to Ephesians 2.8, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not a work of the flesh. It's a transformation of the heart, but it's by grace through faith. God has given every human being the measure of faith, the smallest amount of faith, the faith that is necessary for that individual. Now, you might say some people are further away from God. That's a misunderstanding of how sin works, but I do understand what you mean. 
Someone who is outside the family of faith, but has been raised in a good moral environment, might understand the concept of their wrongdoing and may understand their failings better than someone who's been raised immoral or amoral and has no context. But at the end of the day, they are both lost, damned, forgotten, outside the family of faith, without hope. Yet, they've been given the measure of faith necessary. That's God's grace to us. That we're given the measure of faith necessary to come to Christ and make the good confession. Baptism, then, is the outward expression of that good confession. To put it more simply, as James explains in his letter, in chapters 1, and he gets into that a little bit also in chapter 2, faith if it be without works, is dead. Paraphrasing James's concept as relates to baptism, you say you believe in Christ. Show me that faith without any work at all. And I will show you through my baptism, through my participation in, in the church, through my obedience, I will show you that my heart has really changed. Because you see, devoid of any works, how can you say you truly have faith? True faith creates action. And so baptism, first and foremost, is an outward expression of the faith that we express in our hearts toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That indeed he is the son of the living God. He came to earth, lived a perfect life as a human being, died a death as our propitiation, as the substitutionary death for our sin. And then resurrected on the third day. When I go down into the waters of baptism, I am making a public proclamation. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is life unto me. It is salvation unto me. And as I go down into the waters, it is like Christ being buried. But when I come back up, it is like the resurrection. I have been crucified with Christ. I have died with him. And in that resurrection, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in and through me. This is the purpose. This is the definition. This is the reality of baptism. What else then is baptism? It is, if you look at these verses, especially Romans 6 and Colossians 2. It is the process by which we identify and on a spiritual level by which we participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I do not actually physically get up on a cross. I am not actually physically crucified. I do not actually physically go down into the ground and resurrect. Christ did that. But I acknowledge his sacrifice, and I acknowledge my need of it, and I participate with him. I have fellowship with him as I go down into the waters of baptism. Thirdly, baptism is a ceremonial process by which we are brought into the unity of the faith 
by which we are grafted into the vine and made one with the fellow believers. We see this in what we read in Galatians chapter 3 and in 1 Corinthians 12. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We are all children of God by faith. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. And so, through the process of baptism, I am brought into unity of the faith. I am brought into the fellowship of believers. And so, in short, what is baptism? It is a ceremony. It is a process by which I express in the flesh with the whole of my body, the faith that has arisen in my heart and my mind, the core of my being, that Jesus Christ died for my sin, that I needed to die with him, that I am dead to sin, I am alive to Christ, I have been resurrected with him, though right now that is only a spiritual truth, I manifest it partially in baptism, thus showing forth to all the world I am in Christ. And if I am in Christ and you are in Christ, then I have joined the fellowship of believers. I have been grafted. I, the wild olive branch, have been grafted into the cultured olive branch. I am now connected to the vine. His spirit flows through me, changing me daily, sanctifying me, giving me a love for the things I once hated, the word of God, prayer, fellowship with the saints. When I was on the other side, lost and damned, these things were to me boring and, and dull and unusual and peculiar and, 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 and undesirable. But as I'm grafted into the vine, they become life and joy and everything I desire. Oh, hallelujah. Can anyone say amen out there? Come on. Come on in the chat room. Yeah, I see it. Come on. Now, on the other hand, it also unites me then to the brethren. And so, baptism is a ceremony by which I acknowledge publicly my faith in Christ, become one with the fellowship of believers, and become one in Him. Which leads to second question then. Does baptism save you? And most people focusing on that question would go to 1 Peter chapter 3. So we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, we really, really want to focus on verse 21. However, to keep things in context, so you can see we're not twisting anything or changing anything. We're going to start in verse 18. We're going to go to verse 22. My strong, strong, strong recommendation. You should be taking notes as you listen. And for each of these verses, and I want to thank you, Terry, for posting those up. I see them there in the chat room. Um, let me tell you, as I said, where we're going next. We're going to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. Then we're going to go to the book of Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. And then we're going to go to Acts chapter 8. Pretty much the entire chapter, but we're going to focus on verses 20 to 23. Let's go to 1 Peter. If you have your Bible, let's go. Those of you looking for 1 Peter, it's literally toward the end of your Bible. 
So once you get through all of Paul's letters, Thessalonians, all that, you're going to see letters of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. But before you get to that, you will have hit James. And so after James, you're going to see Peter. So if you're looking at John's letters or the book of Revelation, go to the left a little. If you're looking at any letter written by Paul, Romans, Colossians, Galatians, Thessalonians, etc., or you're looking at the letter of James, go a little forward to the right. And there you'll find 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Pause for a minute so you don't get confused. So he's talking about how Christ has suffered for our sins. He's the substitution. He is the just. He died in our place. We are the unjust. So that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. Likewise, we need to die in the flesh, but be quickened in the spirit, dead to the things of the flesh, the earth, our fleshly lust, alive to the love and passions of Christ. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient. And then he talks about when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So he's shifting now to talk about the days of Noah. And he gives the example of the ark. And he says that God had Noah built the, build the ark. And he saved not only the animals, but the real intention of the ark was to save human souls. And that ark saved eight souls from the worldwide flood that led many to perish. Continuing now, verse 21, this is the key. The like figure we're on to, even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Again, we mainly want to focus on verse 21. These other verses put everything in context. So what is the answer to the question based on this verse? Does baptism save you? The basic, simple, and short answer, according to this text, is yo. I know that's a little confusing. Let me explain. I have a running joke with my students at school. I, those of you who don't know, I'm a public school teacher. And sometimes a student will ask you a question where the answer, you know the answer. It's not that you don't know. And the answer is not maybe. The answer literally is both yes and no. There's a context that needs to be given whereby it is yes, but also a context wherein it is no. And so I answer, yo. 
and then go on to explain. And I want to do that tonight. You see, essentially, baptism, the ceremony itself, does not in and of itself save anyone. Now, I know what you're saying. No, wait, wait, Brother Pete, Brother Pete. It says right there, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also save us. Read the rest of the verse. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So let me explain. He's giving a qualification there. You see, this Christian faith, it's not witchcraft. It's not magic. It's not a genie in a lamp. There is not a single ritual you can do that makes you saved all by itself. If that were true, every human being on earth, believer or not, would simply have to go down into the water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, come out, live however they want, do whatever they want, live for the world, live for Satan, lie, cheat, steal, kill, do whatever they want, and they would be saved. You see, and and, and I mean no offense, but if you're listening tonight and you're Catholic, that is the problem with Catholic baptism. They baptize a baby very early on, without its will or consent, the baby has no way of choosing. And then they say, because the baby was baptized, and baptism in quotation marks, because the baby wasn't really baptized, he was christened. Some water was sprinkled on him. But because of this christening, because of this water touching him, the baby is now saved. The baby is now guaranteed a place in heaven. The baby is now on its way, and it doesn't matter. It should fulfill these other rituals and these other sacraments, but if it does not, the baby's okay. That's not biblically accurate, and that's not what this verse is saying. However, here's the the, the qualification. However, baptism that results from and reinforces a good conscience toward God is a critical component of salvation and clearly, according to the Apostle Peter, does save. Okay, now you might be confused, so let me explain. Simply getting baptized, simply going through a process, simply going into a tank, into a bathtub, into a pool, into a lake, a river, an ocean, what have you. Going down under the water, coming back up, someone else saying in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit does not save you. That act does not save you. If if that's what you believe, then it's only a ritual. Rituals do not save you. Again, this is not witchcraft. This is not do this and you're level one and do this and you're the next level and do this. That's not what this is. The kingdom of God doesn't operate like that. Okay? Just like even under the Old Testament where there were commandments given to sacrifice certain animals. Several times in the Old Covenant it says that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't satisfy God, that he takes no real pleasure in it. A broken spirit and a contrite heart is what God desires. Do you understand? So the ritual was mandated 
to show people that without the, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But the shedding of that blood is not what saved anyone in the Old Testament. It was a covering. But the issue is your heart. God is one who always judges the heart of a believer. And so that's what's going on here. What he is saying is not, where is it? There it is. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. What he means by that is that, see, when you go down into the water, it's like taking a bath in a sense. And what he's saying is, because there were rituals in the Jewish community, there are several types of baptism in the Jewish community to this day. And what a lot of them believe is that the ritualistic cleansing of your flesh makes you right before God. And so Peter's clarifying, it's not the ritual. It's not the going into the water. It's not the cleansing of your flesh with water. You need to get clean deeper than that. But it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. So if my baptism is the consequence of a good conscience toward God, if I have been convicted of my sin, if I've seen the truth of how damnable I am, according to the new covenant, I've seen myself. My heart has been broken. I realize that I not only need forgiveness, I need a Lord. I need a Savior. I need such an one who can teach me and make me to live right. And I make that proclamation publicly. Then I go down into the waters, accepting that there is only one true God, revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If I recognize the death of Jesus Christ is necessary to save my soul, and I go down into those waters, I come back up saved, redeemed. I can rejoice. But if I go through the motions without the good conscience before God, without the change of heart, then I've turned this blessed, wonderful process into a dead ritual. Do you see the difference now? Is that becoming clear? So let me give you a couple of examples. I told you we were going to go to Acts chapter 19. I want to read verses 1 through 7, and you get a good idea of this. Um, in the book of Acts, Paul is traveling around different parts of Asia Minor, and he's run into Apollos, and now they've separated, it says, and it came to pass while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. So Apollos is preaching at Corinth, Paul then continued on, he reaches Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? Now again, that question is a great sermon, a great message, a great teaching in and of itself. There is a baptism of the Spirit. There is an infilling of the Holy Spirit. There is a new spirit according to the Old Covenant and the new covenant that's to be given. According to the Old Testament, in the new covenant, we'd be given a new spirit. That's the spirit of God. There's an indwelling of God. And he's asking them whether or not they've received this. But I don't want to get too deep into that. That's not the teaching tonight. So let's move forward. 
So he asked them this. And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. So they never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of us would say, well, did they hear about Jesus? I mean, they're disciples and they're following Jesus. Isn't that enough? No, Paul knew. If they have no idea that the Holy Spirit even exists, then they have no real true revelation of who God is. And whatever they were baptized into, they were not baptized into truth. We're going to come back to that in a moment. And he said unto them, unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. John the Baptist who came baptizing, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, etc. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after, him that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. Now, this is a very interesting scenario because look at what you have here. You have sincere believers or at least sincere seekers of Christ who simply lacked the proper knowledge to guide their faith. So they're sincere. They want to follow God. They've been baptized, but they don't really know who God is. They don't really have the right information. They have a false view of God, and they're looking for a Savior who's coming in the future. And so what happens? Paul corrects their doctrine. And I want you to notice that upon having their doctrine corrected, they not only made the proper profession of faith, which is implied, though not expressly said in this text, but you can imply from the text they heard this and like, oh, wow, then we need to believe in Jesus. And they wanted to be baptized again. And note that they were rebaptized. Now, this is critical because the reality is listen, as a believer, you only need to be baptized once. But there are times and situations where people go down into the waters of baptism, have no idea what they're doing. For example, I have many friends who, like myself, came out of Catholicism, got saved. Jumped into, now I did not do this, but I have a lot of friends who did this. Jumped into the water of baptism because remember, they're coming out of belief system where you are saved by rituals. If you're Catholic or you came out of Catholicism, you know that. You are not saved in Catholicism by faith in Jesus Christ alone. You have to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. But you also must perform certain rituals. You must at the very least be baptized, go to confession which is ridiculous, but you're required to confess your sins to a man on a regular basis. You must take Holy Communion together with the brethren of the Catholic Church. You must perform confirmation, and unless you die suddenly and it was not a possibility, you must receive last rites. Then two other rites are optional. So coming out of a system where everything is about ritual and ritual and ritual and ritual, they got saved and said, oh, what's the ritual that saves me? But they didn't really know Jesus. They didn't understand the Holy Spirit. They didn't really know the Father God. They didn't really have true saving faith. 
they went through a ritual to go through a ritual. And please don't be offended that I'm calling baptism a ritual. For these people, that's what it was. But then their eyes were opened. Then they heard the true gospel. Then they came to maturity of faith and understand what it means to be saved and understand what it means to be baptized. And they felt the need to be baptized again. And scripture testifies to the fact that there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, Paul says, yes, let's baptize them. And he baptizes them again. Because they were baptized wrong the first time. They didn't really know who God was. They didn't really have the right information. And you see, we, 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 ours is a reasonable faith, so to speak. There's enough logic. There's enough re- reason. There's enough evidence that you should believe it. There's enough doubt that you need faith to believe it. But if you don't have the right information, you can't have the right faith. In fact, let me just, well, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. I want to look at the second example. Um, go a little bit back in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 8. And I want to summarize this story before I read the two chapters. Just to, and, and please go back and read this on your own. But here, I believe it was Philip who originally, but I could be wrong. I believe it was Philip who originally encounters a man by the name of Simon. Um, Simon is a sorcerer. He's a magician. He uses the black arts. He manipulates things in the spirit world. He plays around with demons to mess around with people's lives. He uses familiar spirits and spirits of the air, etc., whatever. Well, whatever. Here comes Simon the sorcerer. Simon the sorcerer was so impressed by the power he saw in the preaching of the gospel. And he saw so many people turning away from magic and turning away from idols and turning away that he decided to turn away too. Now Peter and John come to visit and he sees Peter and John doing great miracles, exhibiting great power, but also laying hands on believers and baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. And there's evidence that they were. People who never really knew the word of God began, began to prophesy. They began to proclaim deep truths about God and quote scriptures they've never read. People begin to speak in other tongues and languages. It's, it's amazing. And Simon says, I want that. Because you see, people who deal in the occult respect and thrive on power. So he wants the power. And so he offers Peter and John money, great sums of money, whatever I got to pay. Tell me what it costs. I'll give you money. Give me this power so that I can do this too. Because he knows if he had the power to release the Holy Spirit into people's lives, this is greater than any magic he's ever done. This is true power. This is real power of God. But he believes he can buy it. And that says something about his heart. Now watch Peter's reaction in verse 20. Acts chapter 8, verse 20 to 23. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee. Perish with thee. In other words, you're perishing and let your money go with you. Because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. 
Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, tells this man, let your money perish with thee. You're lost and let your money be lost with you. You do not have any part or lot in this matter. What matter? Matters of the Holy Spirit, matters of the kingdom of God, matters of salvation. Thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Well, if he's saved and he's sanctified, then his heart would be right, but his heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent. You need a transformation. You need to turn around. I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness. And in the bond of iniquity, you, my friend, are still in bondage. Now, why is this important? This is nothing like the Ephesian believers. The Ephesian believers honestly were seeking God but had the wrong information. Simon has all the right information, all the right teaching, evidenced by the power of God. He's been presented with the true gospel. He sees examples of true repentance, but his heart is not right before the Lord. He has made the right profession of faith, and if you read the text, Simon was even baptized. So this is a real problem for both the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it crowd that says that all you need to do is pray this prayer. I'll walk you down a Roman road, repeat these words, and you're saved no matter how you live. That's not correct. That is heresy, it's anti-biblical, and it's proven wrong right here. Because Simon made the right profession, but with the wrong heart. Well, what about the just get baptized crowd? What about all these different schools of thought and all these different congregations that say anyone who just professes Christ as Lord and is baptized. See, we don't believe in just, you know, praying a prayer. That prayer doesn't save you. But if you pray that prayer and are baptized, Simon prayed the prayer and Simon was baptized. But Simon's heart never changed and his actions proved it. And I'll go a step further and tell you, this is the big problem with the best life now crowd. The greatest detriment to the kingdom of God in the Western world right now, the greatest detriment to the kingdom of God in the United States of America and in other places like it right now is the prosperity gospel. The heresy of the, the, heresy of the prosperity gospel is damning many to hell because think about it. Why did Simon pray the prayer? Why did Simon get baptized? Because Simon wanted power, and Simon wanted success, and Simon wanted money, and Simon saw people following the disciples. Simon saw 
the disciples of Jesus Christ overcoming the powers of darkness and the occult. And so he decided, I'll pray the prayer, I'll say the words, I'll do the ritual so that I too can have this power and therefore have influence and money. And when you preach to people, follow Jesus and you'll have your best life now and your best home and the nicest car and then you'll never get sick and you'll never be bad and everything will go your way and you'll always have favor and you can claim these certain scriptures and it doesn't matter how you live when you have morons and I'm sorry to be offensive but when you have morons preaching that what you can pray that prayer and then it doesn't matter how you live because God can't see your sin and he doesn't care and it doesn't matter that nothing changes in your life. When people believe that, why are those churches so big? Why are those churches so huge? Why are they growing faster than any other? Because people like Simon will pay you money to tell them they have the Holy Spirit when they don't. They will pay you money to tell them that they're healthy, wealthy, and blessed. And I'm sorry to get excited. I I need to calm down, but this really annoys me because you do not understand the danger of this. And to be honest, we, we never know. Scripture never goes back to Simon the sorcerer, so we don't know if he finally repented and changed and really got saved. But if he did, thank God for his encounter with Peter and John. Thank God. Because the danger of following a gospel that promises you a better car and a better life and a better this and a better that and a better this, and then telling you that you're saved Because you're chasing God out of greed instead of confronting the greed in your heart and telling you you need to let that go in order to follow him. The danger is it inoculates you against the true gospel. What do I mean? Listen, I don't want to get into the whole controversy of vaccines. Just listen to me for a moment. How do most vaccines work? They give you a dead version or synthetic, weak version of a living virus. Like when you get the flu virus, you are getting the flu. That's why they tell you you may have aches and pains and maybe even a mild fever over the next you know, three days. Again, I don't want to get into the controversy of the vaccines. Just listen to the example. But what the theory is, is see, if I put this dead, emaciated, weak, useless version in your blood. You build up antibodies that work against the truth. And when the real virus comes, either A, you won't catch it, or B, it won't live very long in your system. And so instead of being out with the flu for two weeks, you'll just be laid out for two days. That's the theory. And a false gospel works the same way. People who receive a false gospel and the truth comes, oh, but I already did that. No, my brother, but you don't understand. You need Jesus. I already did that. No, no, but you need a transformation of heart. No, I already got that. Look, I got saved. I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. What are you talking about? And it inoculates them. Now, in Simon's case, it's scary because he was given the truth. He was given a true, unadulterated gospel, but his heart never changed. 
He pursued the gospel for the wrong reason. And at the end, he is lost because of it. So I show you these two examples to show you that, yes, look, you have one group of people. Genuine seekers. Definitely want to follow God. Went down into the water of baptism with the wrong information about God. And are told, no, no. You need, you, you need more. You need to know who God is and then you need to do this again. So simply going through the process of baptism didn't save them. They needed to go through the process of baptism, not only with the right heart, but with the right information. That's critical. But then you have this second example that's given to us of someone who had the right information, but the wrong heart. And that is exactly what Peter was trying to say in his letters, in his letter when he talked about, um, when he talked about having a right heart before God. Going back again just for one second to 1 Peter chapter 3 when he says in verse 21, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's what he's trying to say. If you simply go through the process of baptism without a good conscience before God, without the right attitude of heart before God, without acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus Christ and your need of him, both as Savior and Lord. And let me quickly explain that. If you only want Jesus as a Savior, you're saying, look, I'm a sinner and I don't want to go to hell. But you're not acknowledging the fact that you have no power to live right after that. By bending your knee to his Lordship, you're saying, Lord, every decision of yours is right. From here on in, my morality my decision-making, my relationships, my profession, my teaching, my preaching, my walking, my talking, my business deals, everything. I want you to be in control of it. Because if I do it, I'm going to dishonor you. But if you run my life and you teach me to obey, then I will glorify you and bring others. If I'm going to be your ambassador, I don't want to get to heaven empty-handed. So now I have right knowledge, I have right heart, I get baptized, it saves. But I have wrong knowledge, wrong heart, wrong attitude, wrong reasoning. The water doesn't save me. Only Christ can. And I need the conviction of the Holy Spirit before I go into that water. Okay? Does that make sense? Is that clear to everyone? All right. I know I can't hear you, but I can see you in the chat room. Is that making sense? Are we good? All right? Okay. So then that leaves us with one more question. I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures. We're going to hit on that question in a moment. But let me give you the question. So, Pastor Pete, if simply going through baptism can't save me, just a process, then do I even need to be baptized? Do I have to do it? The answer is unequivocally yes. And to get into that, let me give you some scripture and then we'll go down the line. We're going to go, so you go to the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. We're going to go back again to Mark 16, 16. We're also going to look at, at John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. 
We're going to jump two more chapters over and look at John chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Then we're going to go back to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Look at just verse 14. Then we're going to go back to John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 15, and then chapter 15, verse 14. I'm also going to make reference to Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, though we may or may not read it. All right, so again, Matthew 28, 19, Mark 16, 16, John 1, 11 through 12, John 3, 3 through 5, Romans 8, 14, John 14, 15, John 15, 14, Matthew 3, 15. Let's go. Consider a few verses on the matter first. Now I said, do you have to be baptized? Yes. Let me show you. Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Mark 16, 16, which we open with. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. John chapter 1 verses 11 through 12 He came into he came unto his own he being Jesus and his own received him not but as many as received him to them he gave power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name John 3 3 to 5 Jesus answered and said unto him, him being Nicodemus, he was having this conversation with Nicodemus, one of the um, priests, one of the, the Pharisees of his day. Jesus answered and said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So unless he's born again, he can't see the kingdom. If he's not born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. Romans eight fourteen, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, keep my commandments. John fifteen fourteen. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Consider also that Christ himself was baptized. And when John tried to resist, when John the Baptist tried to tell Jesus, look, uh, I need to be baptized by you. I shouldn't be baptizing you. Jesus' response in Matthew 3.15 was, suffer it to be so for now. Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Jesus was baptized. So what do we see here? We see that baptism is an essential and commanded 
rite of passage to those who would enter the community of faith. For all the reasons we've already discussed, but also because it is essential, because Christ commands it to be so. And we cannot be his without being obedient to his will. Do you see the issue here? If Jesus didn't want everybody to be baptized, he would not have said, he would have simply said, listen, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He had sent his disciples even while he was alive. He sent out the 70. He sent out the 12. He said, go and preach. The kingdom of heaven is near. But after his death, burial, and resurrection, he told them to go preach the gospel and baptize in his name. And as we discussed earlier in Mark 16, 16, he even goes so far as to say, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, I know the objection. Yeah, but he only says he who does not believe will be damned. So he doesn't say he who has not been baptized. Because anyone who doesn't believe is obviously not going to get baptized. You're not going to be an atheist and say, well, I'll do baptism just in case. Unless, like I said, you foolishly believe that somehow a ritual will save you for something you don't believe in. Do you see what I mean? You know, if you don't believe in Allah, you're not going to fast during the month of Ramadan and follow the five pillars. You're just not going to do it. If you're not a Buddhist or a Hindu, you're not going to do the things that they do. And if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Christ, you're not going to get baptized. So he didn't need to say, he who doesn't believe in is not baptized. He who doesn't believe is unsaved. He's damned. Because he didn't believe. He rejected God. And John deals with that in John chapter 1. But he does say in Mark 16, 16, he who believeth and is baptized. But he also says that those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. And Jesus himself defined love as obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. And even talks about the fact that that's how you know I love the Father. I've kept his commandments. And Jesus was able to say at the end of his life, as they were ready to take his human life from him, which of you convicts me of sin? None of you. You can make up all the lies you want and accuse me of every, anything you want to, but I know that I stand in right relationship with my Father. I've never betrayed a commandment of his because I love him. Jesus had no fear of dishonor of being disowned. He had no fear of the relationship being broken. Jesus knew who he was and knew whose he was. But love provoked him to obedience. And he tells us the same will be true for us. So if Jesus commands it, how can I call him Lord, but decide I'm not going to do what he asked for? Do you see the problem? Now I know the other objection, famous objection. I've made it too, so I want to deal with this. What about, Brother Pete, Pete, hope, whoa, wait, wait. Can we go to Luke 23 for a moment? What about the thief on the cross? So I may not have given you that scripture. Let me give it to you now. Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. I'm not going to read it all, but let's deal with it. For those of you who don't know the story, when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified between two thieves. Now, they're not really thieves. That's the title they were given. 
we know from history and we know from the context and we know from the Gospels, these are actually rebels against Roman authority. The Romans did not crucify people, not even non-citizens, for stealing. They were thieves in the sense that what they tried to steal was authority from Rome, and that is punishable by death. That's why even Jesus' accusers tried to accuse him to Pilate, this man is claiming to be a king with authority over us. You never gave him that authority. You may have given it to Herod. You never gave it to this man. He's usurping Roman authority, and that needs to be punished by death. So there are two thieves, one on his left, one on his right. Jesus in the middle. And as people are walking by and blaspheming and accusing him and ridiculing him, and by the way, it's not like you see in a lot of movies. The cross is not, you know, 9 and 12 and 15 feet tall. It's only a few feet off the ground so that people could walk by. The Romans would do this so people could walk by and spit on the crucified person and slap them and hit them. So Jesus is taking abuse even while he's on the cross. And we see that in all the words of ridicule from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the Romans and the passers-by. But these two thieves get into it too. But suddenly at one point, and we know from Scripture at the beginning, both thieves ridiculed Christ. At the beginning, both of them did. But all of a sudden, the thief on his right has a change of heart. And he reprimands his buddy. Basically telling him, what are you doing? Have you no decently left? We are dying for what we have done. And we deserve the death penalty. We have done things to deserve this punishment, but this man is innocent. He defends Christ, and it shows a real change of heart. You see, repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. It's a change of heart that says, I need to live differently. The problem is this man's got really no more living to do. He's going to die that day. Now, he didn't know he would die that day. Because sometimes they'd leave people on a cross for days. But he knew somewhere within the next 72 hours at best, he was going to be dead. His life was over. He knew he was never coming off that cross. His arms have been disjointed so that his shoulders are out of place. To breathe, you have to press up with his legs and scrape his back against that old rugged cross. He's bleeding. He's hurting. He's been tortured. He's going to die. The Romans are not going to let him walk away from this alive. No one went to a Roman cross and walked away. Technically, not even Jesus. Jesus walked away from the grave. Not that cross. He died on that cross. And that's a powerful statement when you consider that Jesus is God. He died on that cross for you and me. But in the process of his dying, that one thief had a change of heart. And then he makes a request to Jesus that shows he recognizes who Jesus is. He doesn't say, get me off the cross. He doesn't say, save me from this. Remember, he acknowledged he deserves his punishment. But he calls him Lord and says, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns and makes him a promise this day. You will be with me in paradise. 
Now, I've heard people, well, you know, a thief never really got saved. And no, no, no. Do not you dare to make Jesus a liar. Let God be true and all men liars. Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. But you see, Jesus is hanging on the cross and dying. And Jesus can't get off the cross. And Jesus can't take this man down to the river or to a pool or to a lake. This man will never be baptized. Yet Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So did the man get saved? Did he earn his way into heaven? Well, he didn't earn it. But he accepted his sinful nature. He acknowledged how wrong it is. He repented of his choices. He acknowledged Jesus' lordship and asked Jesus to save not his body, but his soul. And Jesus promised he would. Ha-ha, you say. So you see, I told you, you don't need to be baptized. Uh-uh-uh. And I defy you to search all of New Testament scripture and find me a single other example. You can't. Everyone else who gets saved gets baptized. We even have stories of Paul and the other disciples literally pulling people out of their deathbeds and giving them life and healing so that they can get them baptized and have them serve Jesus. So when you look at the circumstances, first of all, if you want to say, well, then yes, it's possible to be saved and not be baptized. You've got to have people who are in circumstances like this. And the problem is this. What happened to this thief, this rebel, is rare. Research has actually been done on this. Over 90% of people will die the way they lived. If they lived all their life cursing and screaming and mean, they go to their, on their deathbed. They're cursing and mean and vile. Over 90%. Most people will die the way they lived. And so if you're hitching your hope, on the fact, well, at the last minute, I'll just, I'll just pray a prayer. Keep in mind also, we already proved, if you pray that prayer and your heart's not really in it, there is no salvation. If you pray that prayer and there's no transformation of life, you're not really saved. If you pray that prayer, get baptized, and there's no transformation of life, and your heart was not in it, you're not saved. So don't you dare think, well, I'll just keep this prayer written down in the day I'm about, I think I'm about to die. No, no, stop playing games with God. Get saved tonight. Make a decision for Christ tonight. Proclaim Christ tonight and then make plans to get baptized. But look at this man's circumstance. And then also note the singularity of it. And together what you find is a message that yes, it is possible but not probable that anyone would be saved and not baptized. I'll give you an example. Now only God knows his heart. But everything we could see seems genuine. Um, my father-in-law, if it's all right for me to be personal for a moment, didn't believe in Christ. He had all kinds of fake beliefs and Mexican Roman Catholicism and some occultism and some other stuff. Um, right before he died, my wife had gone to spend time with him, Gave him the gift of bringing the whole family together around him, something he hadn't enjoyed very often in his life. He really paid a huge price for mistakes he made in life. 
But after all of this and before he went into the hospital, my wife confronted him with his need to trust in Jesus only. And he told her that he'd seen such tremendous change in her, and he, he, he was beginning to question what he believed. And Well, the long and the short of it, he prays. He asks God to forgive him. He desires to serve Christ and even ask God if God could get him through this surgery so he could live and, and, and live a new life for Christ. He put away his idols, the things he used to believe in. He went into that hospital trusting in Christ alone. He went through that surgery. Became, he came out of it well, but then got a really bad infection. His health deteriorated immediately and he died. There was never an opportunity. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, she could have taken him, gotten baptized in the bath. Maybe she could have. I don't know. He was in really bad shape and it just didn't seem like the thing to do. I mean, in hindsight, yes, but everyone expected him to come through surgery. It really wasn't that. It was a serious surgery, but not so serious. We expected him to die. Do you see what I'm saying? I've been at the bedside of people who have given their lives to Christ and wanted to get baptized, but they were dying of cancer. They were dying of this. The doctor wouldn't allow them out of that bed. Unless they got at least a little better and they just died the next day or two. So they changed. They wanted to be baptized. They wanted to follow Christ, but they weren't given an opportunity. Whether or not people like that are saved, I'd have a hard time making the argument that they're not. It's a question of the heart. If their heart was right between God and they truly repented and truly made Jesus the Lord of their lives, only God knows that they lived longer, whether they would have followed him. And if the answer is yes, then God knows and God is gracious. But please understand, those people are rare. And some of those confessions are fake, just people confessing out of fear. I've been at the bedside of people who on their, on their deathbed professed Christ. Then they prayed with the imam. Then they went through last rites with the Catholic priest. Then they went through, you know, some chants with the Buddha. And then they went to the Hindu. And then they went, they were just scratching for anything. I don't believe they had real saving faith as evidenced by the fact they kept calling for everybody else. I do believe, but I don't know. I'm not God. I do believe that my father-in-law did. I do believe that a few other people I know did. By the way, I've also tragically been at the best bedside of people who I begged them, I pleaded with them to give their life to Christ and acknowledge His Lordship before they die. And I watched them say, ah, oh, you've given me something to think about, but ah, well, let me see. If God will heal me, maybe when I get out of here. And he died. Never professing Christ, never giving him his honor, never giving him the glory due. And they made their bed in hell. So let me wrap all this up for you tonight. What is baptism? Is it, it is an outward expression of an inward transformation by which I say, I have been crucified with Christ. I am resurrected in him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It is the process by which I am grafted into the vine, connected to the Christ, and become one with the family of believers. 
Does baptism save me? Yes, if it is the outward expression of a truly changed heart, but no, if it's just a ritual and a process. Do I have to be baptized? Absolutely, you must make every effort to do that if you truly believe in Christ, because it is the outward expression publicly of your belief and surrender to him. And that's the other part about baptism. It's public because Jesus said very clearly, if you are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. So what do we do with this that we've learned now? Number one, if you've never, ever, ever acknowledged the Lordship of Jesus Christ over your life, you need to take the first step and do that tonight. And then you need to make plans to get baptized as soon as possible. And we could arrange how you could do that. By the way, especially if you're in New York, in the greater New York area, give me a call. We'll work that out. We do, listen, we don't need a church building. And especially now, it's summertime. Let's go find a lake and get this done. Let's meet at a pool somewhere and get this done. Oh, you mean do it at a public pool while other people are... Yes, yes. You're ashamed of God before men. He'll be ashamed of you before his father. Let's get it done. Let's get it done. Maybe you don't live in the greater New York area. I'll try my best. I mean, thanks to this ministry, uh, I do have friends. I can put something out there. You let me know where you are. I know that we have listeners in Kansas. I know we have listeners in Kentucky. I know we have listeners in Florida. I know we have listeners in Canada. I know we have listeners in Germany. I know we have listeners in Great Britain. I know that we have listeners in multiple parts of Africa, in, um, in, in, in Pakistan, in India, and other places of the world. We even have some in China, but I will not try to contact them because I know the danger that puts their lives in. All right, so I don't have a way to reach out to them, and I couldn't reach out to them if I wanted to, and that's actually good for the church there. Okay? But seriously, make that profession tonight. How do you do that? Do what the thief on the cross did. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. Stop whining and complaining about the bad things that befall you and acknowledge that you brought this on yourself because you've lived for yourself instead of living for God. Ask God to forgive you. Acknowledge that he is Lord. Acknowledge that his suffering on the cross was for you, that it was your fault. Ask forgiveness. Ask him to come into your heart. Ask him to give you a new heart. Ask him to, give, to help you renew your mind. Get a Bible. Start reading and find a fellowship whether in somebody's home and it's a Bible study or whether there's a congregation near you that truly believes the word of God in its fullness and in balance and get into that fellowship and tell them, hey, listen, I made a profession for Christ. The other night, the other Saturday, listening on internet radio, but I've never been baptized. I need to get this done. Help me. By the way, if they tell you, well, we have a class and it's, you know, one year class and a year from now, find another fellowship. Please hear me. I believe in balance. I have no problem with congregations or fellowships that say we will not baptize anyone on the spot. We need to make sure their heart is right. So we need at least a couple of days. We need a couple of weeks with them. 
I'll accept that. I'll, I know the apostles did it right away, but I understand they're trying to err on the side of caution. By the way, I also completely understand the brothers who you get saved, let's get them, bat- let's get them baptized right now. They prayed that prayer, put them in the water. I understand both sides. But I do not have tolerance for people who play games with the things of God and make it an issue of control. Like I know, I, I knew of one group where their baptism class, you had to have been a member. Of, now watch this. You had to have been a member of the church and saved for at least two years before you could even get in the class. How are you saved following God and disobedient for two years? Then it was a one-year class. You paid money for the class, and it was a full year, 52 Saturdays. And if you missed one, you had to start all over again from lesson one. It was manipulation and control. There's nothing biblical about that. That's not about Jesus. Run from that stuff. But find a fellowship. Get some people. By the way, what if it's someone's, you know, Bible study in their house? And, okay, they're believers. You want to be baptized. Talk to them about it. Fill up a bathtub. Get it done. So I know right now some of you, because of culture and tradition, are waiting for me to pray a prayer. No prayer to pray. I will pray for all of you and bless you as we go. But if you prayed to Jesus for forgiveness, you know what to say. In fact, you're not even listening to him anymore because you're talking to him. That's a beautiful thing. Go get right with him. The only thing, if you can still hear me at all, that I want you to know, after you do that privately, please tell some people publicly. Then go find a fellowship, get a Bible, start reading. And then go get baptized. I will in a moment open up our live call-in line for people who may have questions about anything you heard tonight. Um, But that's where we are. Saints of God, baptism is a necessary rite of passage, an outward expression of an inward truth. The act itself does not save you, but the act from a right heart does. And you need to do it Unless there's some reason physically or legally, like I've also known of people who are in prison, make a decision for Christ, and they will not, the prison will not, although this is rare in America, will not allow them to be baptized. In that case, I know what I said about the sprinkling with water, do it with a couple of believers in the shower then. I know it should be full immersion, but someone's restricting your freedom, I get it. Get it done. All right. Thank you so much for listening tonight. Um, We love you. Jesus loves you. Like I said, we are going to open up our live call-in line. Um, So if you'd like to call, that number is 646-721-9917. Press option one. That'll get you in the calling queue. Um, We're going to worship again for just a moment. And then we're going to check and see if anyone's on that line. All right, be back in a few.
Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I'm going to pause that for just a minute. I'm looking at the calling queue. I don't see anybody right now. Um, If anyone does want to call in, go ahead and do that. Um, But I want to give you an opportunity also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, um, we covet your prayers and that's important. Um, But sometimes it takes money to do some of the things we do. And if you'd like to support us, there are three ways you can do that. Send your gift of any size. And remember, it is a tax-deductible gift. Either through our website, kqcministries.org, click on the Donate Now tab. PayPal, Pop Money, Quick Pay, Christel, use our email address, kqcministries at gmail.com. Or you can mail something in, KQC Ministries, care of Peter Torres, 97 Jefferson Street, Highland Mills, New York, 10930. I want to check that call-in line one more time. I don't see anyone calling in, so I'm going to let the music go again for a moment before I do that. I want to thank you for joining us. And I want to encourage you, if this message has been a blessing to you, um, if you know people who need to hear it, the entire service will be up in the archives um, later tonight. I'm going to try to put the message up there in isolation as well. Um, please get into the hands of those who need to hear. And if you really do have questions about what you heard tonight, um, you could always contact this ministry at 845-553-0883. Now, the best thing to do is to text that number, okay? Uh, We don't have someone 24 hours a day manning the number, so to speak. So someone will get back to you. Sometimes there is a bit of a delay. Some of you have learned that, and I apologize for that, Um, especially this time of year in New York State, getting kids ready for New York State Regents exams while trying to be a good husband and father and at the same time study the word and get ready to do this on Saturdays. Uh, Time is precious and rare. (laughs) Free time is. But I will get back to you. All right, especially if it's a prayer request. Don't worry about whether or not we get back to you. We're praying. All right, we're praying. So we love you. Jesus loves you. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. And I want to take a moment to bless you. Father, this is a blessed people because they're your people. I pray that you touch them, watch over them, guide them, keep them. In all that they do, Lord God, let them be blessed coming in, going out, in the cities, the fields, wherever they go. Bless them for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, one more time. We love you and Jesus loves you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's go rejoicing. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb.